And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Luke chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please So to understand why the listeners in the synagogue when Jesus was teaching got so mad, you have to sort of mentally quick backtrack with Jesus to the example that he brings up of Elijah and Elisha, 700 years before his own day, recorded in the book of Kings. Um, And the stories sort of teach roughly the same things that Jesus brings up. So just to zoom in on the Elisha story, um, God raises up the most powerful prophets um, of Israel, remember he receives a double portion of Elijah's mantle, Um, and so he's appointed by God, and he's doing the work of God amidst the people of God, and he's proclaiming God's truth, and in the midst of that um, extraordinarily significant ministry, um, when there were many people with leprosy at some moment, God calls Elisha out of the sort of boundaries of the chosen people, and then goes to actually one of the neighboring peoples who's often making war with Israel and often causing them to stumble into idolatry. I mean, these are not a covenanted people. They're an enemy people at the time. And it goes to uh, the Syrians and then goes to this kind of bozo king named Naaman and heals him of his leprosy and then makes his way back to, um, to Israel. Um, and when Jesus tells this story and he's mapping it onto his own ministry right he's telling a parable in this case not like a fictional parable of like seed or so you know but but something that happened in real history but he's claiming it as a parable a teaching point uh, of his own ministry and the the people listening to him get furious and they turn on a dime right it's we heard at the beginning of the gospel lesson they marveled at his gracious words and then in a moment they went to drive him off a cliff in their anger. Why are they so disappointed? Why, why were they so angry? Um, it seems that, I think one of the clues is in that verse that says, they, they were saying, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, this is one of our guys. And he's teaching like this, and we've heard he's doing miracles. And it's as if they thought that because he was uh, from the city of Nazareth, that they'd have some sort of hometown loyalty advantage. I think, trying to think through sort of the, the mentality of the moment, I think the way they were thinking of it was like, imagine if there was some, um, some guy who uh, was uh, really like an Auburn or Opelika, <laughs> hometown guy, and goes to school here, goes to university here, and then he gets elected a senator, and he goes off to the Senate, and we're kind of thinking like, great, he's really going to like do good things for this region. You know, sort of when there's a business contract, he'll send it this way or, you know, he'll kind of promote values according to our region. And then let's say in the Senate then, we see actually all of a sudden that guy starts doing all this stuff that's super favorable to, I don't know, New York City or New York State and sending business that way and ideology supporting things that are not uh, in harmony with sort of the hometown. And you'd be mad, right? There'd be this sense of like, Wait, no, you were supposed to benefit us. And I think that's the mentality that the Jews in in Nazareth had about Jesus. Like, wait, why are you telling us a story that you're going to be benefiting not other people that are actually sort of outsiders and opposed to us? 
And the root of the problem is how they were conceiving Jesus in the first place. As if he was like some sort of senator, someone who was there to be... um, as if he was on their team. As if it was about them and what he, what he could now do for them. Like the Messiah's here and, hey, lucky us, he's from Galilee. Like, that's going to be good for us. And the focus of their attention is in the wrong place. They're looking at, what can he do for us? He's one of us. And so when Jesus says, ah, when God sends his appointed man, Elisha, the story he tells, mapping on to himself, is he's, he's not on your team. Right? It's not, he's not here. F- if you're asking what can he do for you, you're asking the wrong question. And so it's startling to me that Jesus actually gets ahead. He, he actually almost, uh, he doesn't wait for the problem to emerge. He knows what's in their hearts. And rather than sort of them just sort of seeing, oh, wow, wait, Jesus is blessing these Gentiles and he's passing through Samaria. And he's also, there was kind of a rivalry between Nazareth and Jerusalem, and he's blessing people in Jerusalem, and what's going on? He gets ahead of it all, and he says, if you're thinking of me like this, like, like I'm here, what can I do for you? You're going to be disappointed. Um, he actually names it and, and evokes the very reality that was in their hearts that he sort of draws out in, in mapping this parallel to Elisha, and their disappointment turns to anger. I think... Um, Part of why this kind of complex and situational instance in this morning's gospel is given to us as God's word is that we can sometimes find ourselves in the same place. Right? The, the problem of Jesus' hometown buds was that they failed to grasp who he truly was as the son of God with all of the dignity that comes with that. We know from Mark's gospel it says they didn't have enough faith in his hometown and to be able to um, unleash the power of God for healing and miracles. Um, and in a similar way, even in the church, even under the New Covenant, there's a temptation or maybe an accidental thing we can slip into to think about, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus is sort of on our team. We've got his power like in our back pocket. What's he going to do for us? And we can sort of lose a rightful orientation of our attention onto ourselves rather than just looking at him. Because what Jesus will do is, through the course of the Gospels, is reorient the question to not what can he do for us, but just what is he doing? And that ministry culminates in his own self-offering, his death on the cross, which is actually prefigured in a little way, even here, in um, the very, very early on, in the early days of his ministry, um, did you see there's sort of this parallel flavor, right? That the crowd is excited about him and then they turn on him and they want to kill him. That's the exact same scenario as Holy Week, right? At the very end of his ministry when the crowd's excited about him on Sunday and they turn on him. But what we see in Luke chapter 4 actually throws, not only does it sort of point to the end of his ministry, it even throws extra light on it in that Jesus just slips right through there lynch mob, right? They, they want to just drive him off the cliff in anger and, he, and it says he just um, passes through them. How does he do that? I don't know. How does he walk on water? There's something definitely divine and mysterious. He wasn't like throwing elbows. It was a mysterious passing through. So what we see is that when Jesus doesn't want to die, he doesn't die. When it comes time 
according to the will of the Father for him to die, to lay down his life, to redeem you and me and every sinner since Adam. He does it willingly, as it says in the Gospel of John. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And Luke 4 proves, I mean, we, we could take him at his word. We should. But it proves, too, that this is really true. When he doesn't want to die, he just passes through the angry crowd. When he allows the angry crowd to kill him, it's not like things got out of hand. It's that he willingly chose at the perfect time, according to the will of the Father, then to pay the price for the sins of the whole world. And in sort of the trajectory of the Gospels, this sort of foreshadowing of his early ministry of what's going to come at the end, the whole point is this sort of grand reorientation. And I think there's even an analogy to the book of Job here, like how there's all this question, God, how is this being? And then there's this sort of surprise answer. Okay, you're not on our team, you're going to do some, what's this going to look like? And then the answer is actually reframing of the question. Look at what he does. Not what's he going to do for you, but look at what he does. He gives his own life for you and for me. That is his answer. This should reframe our question. And it's not just, I'm not just speaking about history, like what he, when he actually died on Calvary, but even continually in the present, that Jesus gives his own life to us willingly. It's not like we're just taking it from him, maybe especially in the sacrament. It's his own hand that gives us his own life to be strengthened and nourished by. Amen.